friends, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is writer, pastor, and activist Marlena Graves. Marlena holds a Master's of Divinity from Northeastern Seminary, and she's currently working on earning her PhD in American Cultural Studies. Her writings have appeared in Christianity Today, Encourage, and Our Daily Bread. Despite her long list of accomplishments, Marlena has despaired over the hand she was dealt for much of her life. She often begged God to explain to her why the cards were stacked against her as a Hispanic Latina woman born into a poor family that was plagued by the effects of generational poverty and mental illness. In our conversation today, Marlena shares her story of growing up in poverty and when she first became acutely aware of just how underprivileged she was. But she also takes us on her journey of learning to see God at the lowest places to feed and fill us. We also talk about what it means to love your neighbor as Marlena challenges us to live a life that reflects that of Jesus more than that of the world. Well, Marlena, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. I'm so very glad to be here. Well, like I told you, I've listened to a few of your other podcasts, and I just appreciate you taking the time to do this over and over. I have to imagine you guys get kind of tired about sharing your story and about your book and all of that. So I appreciate you taking the time to do it with me today. It's always an honor to talk about things that are important. So thank you. Can you just tell me and everyone listening just a little bit about your day-to-day, where you live, who you live with, what you do every day, and then we'll dive into your story. Yeah, so I live right outside of Toledo, Ohio, um, just in a suburb, Perrysburg, Ohio. And uh, my husband's a philosophy professor at the University of Finley, which is about 37, I know exactly, 37 minutes <laughs> south of us. Okay. But we decided to be in a bigger metro area than when the, where the school is located. Um, okay. But it's the closest suburb or part of Toledo to where my husband um works. And so I have um, been married to Sean. It was 20 years in July. And we have three daughters, uh, 13, eight and six. And um, so he's a philosophy professor during the pandemic, which is when we're recording. He's been um, working from home teaching classes. And I also started a PhD program. I was accepted, uh, praise the Lord, into a PhD program at Bowling Green State University, which is about uh, 20 minutes away from here. And so all day I'm um, taking classes, doing homework or grading papers and midterms and also trying to be a mom to my daughters. It's kind of hectic with, you know, everyone at home and- And fit in podcasts like this. That's a lot, Marlena. Like that's a lot. I enjoy enjoy it. And, uh, you know, again, I'm honored, like I said, that you asked me, but I- that's kind of my context right now. And I think, you know, I'm a later student, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I got my MDiv right, almost right out of college while my husband was getting his PhD. And then uh, I really struck me that I wanted to help form the church. Mm-hmm. And so I've been an adjunct professor at a seminary. I'm teaching a class right now in spiritual formation on Tuesday nights uh, online. And uh, my life's always either been in the church, like working at churches as, as like associate assistant pastor roles, uh, directors of discipleship, youth group, or on a college university or in nonprofits like those that those three stools. And so it's shifted, you know, while my husband 
went to school. I was like the primary breadwinner, you know, and um, then we had children and I wanted to go back. I've been wanting to go back to school for about a decade and the Lord worked it out for me, but it is a little bit difficult, more difficult, I have to say. And I mean, everyone has their difficulty having children around. Cause I feel like, you don't have to igno- not ignore you. Like I acknowledge you, but it's taking right. a lot of my time as opposed to when we were without children. So um, I do not wish my daughters away. It's, but I do have to admit it's a little bit difficult because it does take a lot of time. You have to be probably so disciplined and structured. And yeah. like you said, in this area, age of pandemic and having them at home, that's a whole other ball game. So, and I know I've heard you share on another podcast, just the story of how you did finally end up in school and that you're grateful for that too, to be getting mm-hmm. able to get your PhD and your PhD which I think is so fascinating. And if we have time later in the show, I want to dive more into this. Um, your PhD is in American culture that you're working on is in American mm-hmm. culture studies. And you're researching the influence of American culture has on evangelicals view of immigration, race, and poverty. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So we're going to try to talk about that if we have time at the end. So sure. before we do, let's get started and dive into your story. Take me back as far back as you want to in your childhood or your ancestors, wherever you feel is important or has had the most influence on your passion today and what has formed you. Because I know you weren't even, you weren't born in the United States. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I wasn't born on the mainland. Puerto Rico is technically the U.S., but it's not a state. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I was born in Puerto Rico. I wasn't there very long, a few years. And then, you know, my dad was in the military. So then we moved California for a little bit, then back to Pennsylvania, where my dad was from. And for several reasons, um, the area where my dad was from is impoverished. It used to have like oil and steel, but that all left, you know, so it's beautiful area in Pennsylvania, visually beautiful, but it's impoverished. Like the, there's not a lot of business. And so I think that to capture my childhood, you know, I would say I grew up poor. I talk about this in my newest book, The Way Up Is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself. I didn't realize how much that poverty had influenced me probably until like the last maybe 10, eight to 10 years, how poverty shaped me, I wasn't aware, you know, we're not aware of how things influence us. And um, I wasn't aware. And again, I talk about this in my book about how underprivileged I was until I had something to compare it to, right? Right. Until I was around, uh, you know, Christians at a Christian college at my undergrad and afterwards, because Brenda Salter McNeil, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with her. She came, she was training us in diversity when I worked for the university and the same university that I went to as an undergrad. I ended up there for a little bit. She did something, I don't, they call it the privilege walk. There's like a lot of different names for it, but we called it the race race, I think, where she, we were in a, you know, just a large classroom, multi-purpose classroom. And she just, you know, put like tape down the middle of the floor and used that as a starting line for the race, if you want to call it. And she asked a series of questions. Um, I think this was like 2009 or 10. She asked a series of questions and our answers to those questions uh, determined whether we took a step forward, stayed in place or moved backwards. And so we all started at the starting line and I never made it past. I just kept stepping back. Uh, mostly maybe I might've stepped forward for one or two, but I went back, 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 back to the back of the line. So can you give an, Oh yeah, you're doing it. Yeah. Give me an example of some of the questions. Yeah. Questions were like, did you ever go to a summer camp? You know, and I remember when I was small, I'm like, oh my gosh, people get to go to summer camp. You know, my pastor's kids want this. It's expensive to go, well, to summer camp. No, you know, are you a woman? Take a step back. 
Are you a woman of color? I see one of my daughters coming in here. Hopefully she'll you're fine. I've, I've already told mine to stay out and the dogs yeah. are in the kennels. Um, <laughs> it's a real world we're living in. I kind of forgot. But so I, I um, yeah, so questions were like, you know, are you a woman of color? And to take a step back. Have you ever been told, you know, you couldn't do something because you're a woman or a woman of color? Have you been sexually assaulted? Um, just a lot of, lot of questions. Do you have two parents that went to college? Yes or no, yeah. or a parent. And so by the end of these 50 questions, I remember, um, you know, standing in back of the room, there was one white woman that was ahead of me. She, but she was the only one that was kind of far back. She grew up poor. Um, then one of my friends is an African-American who was, a, you know, a lawyer and, you know, she's now a magistrate. But I remember thinking, look, I have a master's of divinity and I'm all the way in the back of the room. Some of these people, not that I thought I was better, but I mean, they, they just have not just, but they have a bachelor's degree. So my education doesn't matter. Like it doesn't right. matter how well right. I can talk to you about something. It doesn't matter. I've been to seminary. I guess I have not had all these privileges. And, you know, my whole life, I thought I was doing well because I was richer than my own family. You know, I, I mean, we have food in the refrigerator. There are times where I didn't as I was young. That was the first time that I realized just what a staggering difference there was um, in privileges. Yeah. Now it's become more popular to talk about it or more in the culture, I should say. Right. Um, I think especially the last six months, I mean, we've seen that video. We've heard a lot about white privilege. A lot of people yeah. still question it, have a hard time with it. And what you explained, I mean, I think that's the perfect example of showing it. Like you are an educated woman, but that your start, you had such a harder start and had to work so much harder mm -hmm. than somebody like me that didn't grow up in poverty, that is white. And it's not, and we'll I want to talk about that later because privilege isn't bad, right? but, but we're called to use it, and I, it when we have it. So um, you talk about this in your book and I quoted it. I'm going to read a quote. You said that day I discovered that even with my education and ability to think, to think fundamentally, I was still on society's and American church's bottom of the pecking order. Mm -hmm. And just that you felt that, like that is such a heaviness. And like you said, that made you think about your childhood and your upbringing. And when you say you were poor growing up, I mean, I think some of us feel that way. Like I didn't get the tennis shoes I wanted, but you were, you were poor. Like you didn't have food in the, in the refrigerator often. Can you share just a little bit, like even the whole experience with the lunch ticket and the reduced lunch? Oh, yeah. So, you know, when they talk about children at risk, I realized after learning all these things that I exactly one of those children, you know, like as far as economic wise, you know, there are days where I would come home and there was no food and the school lunch was my only food during the week. Right. And yeah. if it was a weekend or we were trying to wait for me, we were trying to wait for a paycheck for my dad, or we we'd have to go out and cut wood so he could have gas to get to work. A lot of it was due to the economic area, but there was some mental illness in my family. I think that caused that, you know, with my dad, there were several factors right. of poverty. Like if you want to, yeah. So I always, I always kind of, sometimes I felt embarrassed because this, I don't think they do this now, but you know, I, the lunch tickets were color coded depending on whether you were free and reduced or you just paid for your lunch or whatever. At some point it hit me that I got the really bright tickets that suggested that I was poor because uh, I got yeah. the free and I was sometimes I was embarrassed. So I didn't eat. I didn't eat lunch mm. because I was just I didn't I didn't want to show my lunch ticket. You know, if I knew I was going home and there was no food, I I had to just grin and bear it to eat. And sometimes uh, my abuela who would live with us, we'd make, you know, the flatbread again, that's popular now, but like, you know, with flour, water, oil and salt and just try to 
make something to eat. But I knew that was hard. I just didn't realize again that it was, I had no um, concept of on a continuum of where I was in the the United States of poverty. And so, I mean, I talked about this before, but I'd go to my friend's house. Like one of my friends, I just, maybe they were rich, maybe they were middle-class, but I'm like, oh, you have bylaws, you pay $18 for (laughs) shampoo. I'm like, you are extremely rich people, you know? And vacation, what was that? Every now and then, even now we still go on vacations every now and then. And the the other thing that that goes with that is that, so I had friends who, not everyone, but if you're like middle-class, their parents give them down payments for houses or pay for this or that. I had to pay for everything. I mean, my dad, my parents tried to help me out, my dad a little bit, but I had to pay for everything, everything ourselves. So even now, you know, I feel like I'm never, if I, if I'm using that, the image of the people that I walk with, a lot of the people in my, I don't want to say my category, because I could say like, I can really talk well in middle-class register, but that it's generational poverty too, because it didn't just start with my parents. So it still follows me. Like people are like savings, this, that I'm like, nope, like that you just start from nothing and are trying to climb out. And so I I like that you brought that up because that generational wealth is a huge thing that related to privilege. Like you just said, you didn't have your house, a down payment or car or college. And that sets Mm -hmm. you so far back as do Mm -hmm. so many people of color that don't have that generational wealth because of this oppressive America that they grew up in that did not give that to them. So that's such a good point. The other thing that you bring up with your childhood that I want to dive into a little bit, because you are such a faith-filled, God-loving woman is the role of God and faith in your childhood. You talk about, I'm going to read another quote. You say, my painful childhood experiences drove me to immerse myself in scripture. So all the way from like fifth to seventh grade, you share about, and I can't, I've read both of your books. I also read A Beautiful Disaster. So I don't know if it's in this one or, way up, or the way up is down where you talk about that. But that was really profound because that's what you did. You yeah. spent days and hours in the word. So share a little bit about that and your relationship with God during that time. Yeah. So because I would never want, I, some of it's my personality. We're all different. But I did not like television to me running during the day when my mom and my abuelita who, who would live with us, you know, they'd watch soap operas like the Young and the Restless, like the Spanish ones on Univision. And I that was just like nails on a chalkboard to me. I did not like listening to television or watching that much TV. I did watch a little bit when I was young. but I, And also I was like, in my mind, I'm like, why am I watching things that don't coincide with what I believe? Like, why would I watch people do things that I don't, be- that I say that I don't believe in? So Again, I'm not judging other. I'm just saying that's kind of the mindset that I had. And so I would go outside or, you know, do help my dad chopping wood or loading wood or whatever it was needed to do. And then when I was done, I would read whatever books we had in the house. Mostly they were books on psychology of my dad's or scripture. And I spent about two to four hours a day. I'd say about from the age of 10 to 14 reading scripture, depending on what was going on. And I felt very close to God. I felt like, you know, God did this for people in scripture he can do that to me. So for example, in, I think in first Samuel three, I think it's 19 through 21, Samuel heard God's word at Shiloh and God told him that none of his words would fall to the ground. I'm rephrasing it. I had an inclination that the words I was hearing from the Lord later on, first I was like, why am I learning all these things? Why do I care about these principles? And like, I was just thinking about God 
day and night, felt God's presence. And how do I apply what I'm learning to my life and to help other people? And ever since I was young, that's just been the case. You know, I mean, it was in seminary where people called me a mystic. I'm like, what's a mystic? You know, aren't we all supposed to be close to God? I, to me, there's nothing. I mean, of course you have times of darkness or dryness. I don't mean that, but to me, you know, God revealed himself to me through scripture. And I never thought, I thought, well, if the Lord could do that with other people. He can do it with me. I didn't think, oh, I didn't hear until later. I went to college. Some people believe, you know, God did that then, but he doesn't do it now. And so that was a real grace. And so I guess the poverty, maybe it's because I didn't have all the other distractions that other people really drove me to God. And, and I was hungered and thirst for God's presence and companionship of God. Yeah. And so that has, um, you asked earlier about my life, that has stayed with me. I think those those words are in our hearts and we know what God was teaching. And like you just said, like he was your companion and there for you. Mm-hmm. You're also pretty honest though, like times you felt like he wasn't or crying out or being having long prayerful periods at time. Like, where are you God in all this? You know, I mean, yeah. you, you had to grow up very quickly in mm-hmm. your house. Mm-hmm. So you did have some wrestling with God and not always the answers you thought. Do you want to share a little bit about that experience? Yeah. I mean, there are times in my life where, you know, I've asked, prayed for a long time. Like I used to ask God, why am I poor? To understand like as a child, like you don't understand adult things and how decisions contribute this. All I knew is like, why am I poor? Why is this happening to me? Why am I part of this household? Or just suffering at the hands of the wrongdoing of other Christians or um, not praying for something for a long time. And I still feel God's close, but I feel like in a particular thing, like, where are you? Because I see you in all this part of my life. This is a brief example that I know other people stuff. like my husband's dad died when we were 24. He was 55. He died of cancer. Mm. You know, why is it that that prayer is not answered, but I pray for other things, you know, they're answered. I pray for other people and it's answered. But I think I used to really wonder why I was born into the household, why I suffered. Now, of course, this was before that race race thing. I didn't know, but I knew that it was, life was hard. Like, can I have some relief? And so there are times where my faith is tested and I'm like, God, what is going on? Like, I know you're here. I, yeah, it seems like God can sometimes plead the fifth and be quiet (laughs) for a while on certain things. I grew up with a lot of difficult things, difficult situations where I had to, you know, seek the Lord's help and help from other people around me. I too have the dark nights of the soul. So yeah. And you share a lot of that um, in your book, a beautiful disaster, just about all your periods in the wilderness Mm -hmm. and meeting God there. And that's, I I highly recommend both of your books and we'll talk about that at the end of the show. We'll link both of them up because you're really honest about the days in the desert and the wilderness and you get out only to go back again. And I think that is such an important message for all of us to know and hear while we're walking on this earth. So going back to you say that in college, doing that activity on privilege really opened your eyes. So I know in college, you were majoring in history, thought you'd be a history teacher, Mm -hmm. but you landed in seminary. So how can you tell me a little bit how that came about? that you still felt that calling? I was like, you know, I have to get a job. What am I going to do? What do I want to do? It's hard, you know, when you're in college trying to figure out. So, you know, I always loved history and, you know, I'm using that now in the PhD program, but I got a license in Ohio as a high school history teacher, nine to 12. We moved after my husband got his master's degree. We got married right after we both graduated. And then we were 
in Ohio for two years so he could get his master's degree. And then he got into a PhD program at the University of Rochester, Rochester, New York. And I was like, what should I do? I, I was working for a couple of years by that point. And I had, I really struggled uh, because I, the university I had gone to the, was a Christian undergrad college where I also worked at later. And, you know, that's where I learned that women aren't allowed to do things, or at least they teach that, even if it's not explicit, because I remember even talking in class, answering questions, um, you know, I talk about the time where I did that spiritual gifts assessment. And I got like, what did I get? Like pastor, teacher, prophet. And um, <laughs> too bad for you. You can't use them, right? <laughs> yeah. They said, well, the professor said I could teach child Sunday school. And oh, I'm like, goodness. you're insulting the children, not me as much. I mean, you, yeah. I mean, like the children should have good teachers. I'm, that's not my, I Your love gift, children yeah. and talking to them, but I don't think I could lead them well. Like people yeah. that do are saints. Right. And I was like, well, I guess what am I going to do? Cause like in that kind of environment is like, you keep getting dismissed like your gifts. I'm like, and I used to ask God, what a God, why he made me a woman. Yeah. I'm like, why did you make me a woman with male gifts? Mm-hmm. Um, I found out later that, you know, the gifts obviously aren't gendered. I, and I didn't even think they were before I went to the college because that was not the teaching I received in my little local church. It was the, that was put upon me at the Christian college. Sure. But by the time I graduated, I was like, what am I going to do? My husband's like, Marlena, like I was having angsty conversations for like a year. He's like, every time we go to this Chinese restaurant, <laughs> I mean, tongue in cheek, but true. He's like, I know if we're going to the Chinese restaurant, we're going to have a talk about your life. <laughs> What's going to happen? You know, uh, these angsty conversations because it was really um, bothering me because I felt like I didn't have permission to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. like, just go to seminary. And that's what my heart really wanted to do. I didn't know if I wasn't necessarily going because I knew that I was going to be a pastor. I was going to do this, but I wanted to study the subject matter. I love, yeah. I just, I want the church I want myself to be like Jesus. And I just love thinking about the Lord and how to be like the Lord and to communicate the love of God to people. I can articulate that now, but I couldn't before because people grew up with like God's mean, just always like God is keeps ledgers is looking for what I'm doing. wrong. I mean, of course we're sinners, but it's just almost like I have said before, like that worm theology that I, picked up from other people, you know, um, like you're just awful and almost like God can barely stand you. I'm like, that's not the God that I read in the right. Bible. I mean, right. I know stuff happened in scripture that we wonder about. God looks at us with delight. God looks at yeah. us with delight. So anyways, I went to seminary was one of my favorite things in the world just because of the people. And there were all sorts of different denominations. I think there were over 50 denominations and over 33% minority So we had all sorts of people and we didn't have the kind of polarizing conversations we're having right now. Mm -hmm. Even though people didn't have the same view on women or politics, Jesus was central. That was Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. And they really do have like a kind of spirit about them. And I know there's some other schools like this that I was like, oh, this is what heaven's like. Like, look, we aren't on the same page about everything, but Christ is central. And we did not, we were not polarized into bitter contestations in seminary, even though, I mean, we're not, I'm not, I'm not undermining, but I think there was a beautiful spirit about it. I'm glad I didn't listen to what 
the people at the college tried to tell me about what women can or can't do. Yeah. And I mean, I think I shared with you my kind of deconstructing over the last couple of years, but the whole women in ministry is really what started a lot for me too. Like just and having daughters like yourself and them being told they can or can't do certain things. And it really makes you explore the faith and Jesus and what, I don't know, the Bible being used as a weapon and the harm that it's doing. So I'm, I'm glad that you did what your husband suggested and got your seminary. I listened to, you have it linked up on your website. I believe it was at Northwestern. You preached about who is your neighbor. Not, yeah. um, and that was such a great message. And you incorporated your history in that, the mm-hmm. history of the United States and the, who our neighbor is. So you are so, you are so gifted in your preaching and teaching. Well, and one of those gifts right now is your book that came out this summer, The Way Up is Down. So let's just dive into that message. I mean, I feel like that's kind of been the message that really that God, I mean, your life has prepared you for is the mm-hmm. message that you teach in this book because you did know such such poverty growing up. One of the things you say, though, I'm haunted by the effects of generational poverty, though I may have been born on the lowest rung in America, in many ways, I am rich. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing it took you a while to get to the point to say that. Tell me, just tell me about that statement and what you mean. I know what you mean because I've read the book, but can you Mm -hmm. kind of explain that? Because I think that's in a nutshell so much of your book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. So I'm thinking about now that you asked that question, I'm thinking about framing it in this way, you know, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm-hmm. My book, The Way Up is Down, um, the theme comes from Philippians chapter two, where Paul says, have this in mind, you, this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. You know, he didn't grasp for equality with God. And in another place, he says, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. And so I, you know, I used to, as I said, just a few minutes ago, I'm like, why was I born to this family? Why did, why have I had to go through so much heartache? It's just the formula, you know, the formula we think works. Like if I obey you, then that means things should work out. So I still used to have that in my mind when I was young, you know, if I obey God, then things will work out. Well, I'm like, I'm obeying you and things are definitely better because I have you with me, but it's a hard life still. (laughs) But I realized that when I started to think about Jesus, he didn't, he eschewed the wealth that he could have been his and the power that could have been his as God, right? Coming to earth as a poor baby, poor man, occupied territory to poor, you know, poor parents. He didn't, he could have became like the best rabbi at the time and the best trained schools and gotten the most elite people and minds surrounding him, but he didn't do that. He didn't take that trajectory when he came to earth. Instead, he, he was born in poverty to poor people and hung around the people that were marginalized and ostracized in society. And then I'm like, oh God, Jesus can relate to me. Um, You came to the lowest rung. I mean, you were died as a criminal on the cross, which is humiliating. But I was like, why would you do that? You know, it's not in the book. I said, who in their right mind or God or a human being would do that. Like, I don't think that, I mean, now I'm looking back, I can't say that I would want to change my life because I wouldn't be the person that I am, but I I don't want people to go hungry or to suffer, right? You don't want that upon uh, someone. What I didn't understand was, and I want to be careful in saying this because I want to emphasize that I still have a lot to learn you know, our difficulties can either drive us away from God. And sometimes we feel far away from what God we're bitter. You know, that's natural, especially if we've been abused or have had profound suffering. If someone's in that situation listening, there's just love for you. And I pray for healing. So sometimes we've been devastated and we just can't even think of God or the church and we just need to take a break. But 
in my case, for some reason, it just drove me to God. And because of that, I think that, you know, I was so dependent on God and I hopefully am continue to be that it gave me more spiritual riches, but I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize that Jesus came to live with me, my family, my abuelita and my humility. And you don't have to be poor for that to happen, right? You have to just know that you need to depend on God and and not yourself. And so, or learn that I should say, and we all learn it in different ways, but I understand now, you know, when you're poor, like I have, or we're poor, I have nothing to lose, right? I had no reputation to lose or upkeep or family, reputation. And so maybe I didn't have those kinds of temptations. I mean, obviously I had other ones. So I felt like that opened me up. Now I can say this looking back to allow God to work in my life because I just threw myself upon God. And so I learned that, you know, just as Jesus did, he eschewed the rights that could have been his so that he could serve and love other people. God doesn't want us to, when I talk about kenosis in my book, giving up our rights like Jesus did, it's not that we give up our personality or the things we love. It's that we allow God to take anything in us that is not of him. And we we just say, hey, take this. I want to empty myself of this so that I can be filled with you. So the more empty we are of the things that are not of God in our lives, the more full of God we are. Um, and so that's why I think... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they shall be filled, right? If you feel empty, you're desiring, you will be filled. And it helped me see that the church, why did I write the book? Because the church takes the whirlwinds of trying to get success. You know, we use Christian celebrity culture. We care about who has the biggest church, where they live. Some women feel like this pressure, they have to look so beautiful. So there's just culture of plastic surgery. I'm not saying if you had plastic surgery, that's wrong. But like, even no, you if, don't have to worry about being politically correct. I know what you're saying for sure. Things are pervasive and the it's pressure that we feel. Yes. The way of Jesus. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, that's not what God is like. If we read scripture, Jesus did not use a worldly means of success to accomplish God's means. He used God's ways and means. And the thing is, I feel like I'll just talk in the context of the American church. We don't (laughs) overall, we don't overall. And I think that's part of of my wrestling. Your book definitely helped fill in some of those voids and spaces is I feel like we pick and choose so much the American church of scriptures but then we are missing a big, really, we want to be Jesus followers, but we're missing a big, big part of his life and what he actually did, mm-hmm. that he he actually was a refugee. He actually was a was poor and depended on other people for, I mean, for his, for his preaching. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I really wrestle with. And I don't know, America, we're so privileged and have so much. I don't know how we get there. I mean, it's a very hard balance because I even, when I finished your book, I'm like, well, oh, like, what, what does this mean for me? Are, are we all called to be poor? Like, there's still a lot of questions that we don't have answers for, but I think you're calling really to take a close examination of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think necessarily we're all called to be poor because, right, Jesus had a Joseph of Arimathea who was rich that provided a, you know, a tomb, a place for him to be lit, you know, and the women that supported him out of their means, their businesses right. or their money. But I do think that we are all called to be more generous. That's so, so good. Yeah. Because you could be, it can sound legalistic and that's not what I mean. But like, I think we're called to be generous, probably more poor than we are comfortable with, but mm-hmm. to be more generous than we are. I mean, care for the people. He even cared for his mother on the cross. When he was dying, mm-hmm. he asked John to take care of his mom, 
right? Because yeah. he wanted to make sure she was provided for. So like John Wesley said, you know, do the best to provide for your family and pay your creditors and then, you know, be generous with the what you have. And so I try to do that. And so there are people that have tons more money than I'll ever have that are extremely generous, right? And mm-hmm. loving and the Lord's going to say, well done. You know, we're all kind of in different situations, but I think the, if God confronts us with something and we're finding that we're kind of hoarding and being greedy, then that might kind of be an invitation for us to say, hmm, where's this coming from? Right, right. And it can look like money, time, right. resources, so much. And I, I really equated, you brought this up a minute ago, but I had highlighted this. You said each day of our lives, God asks us to relinquish our rights in favor of his will. And I really kind of equated that. I thought back to the privilege, you standing at that line and the privilege that moves some of us forward. And I think those are the privileges that some of us can give that we're asked to give up that we have, whether that is having more resources or more time or connections or that to help those that don't have all those privileges, whether it's the refugees or the poor or the homeless. So I don't know. That's kind of how I saw the whole connection of where you started and where you went with it that I really appreciated. You say that we value what Jesus values, but our lives and Christian subculture frequently preach a different message. So where do you see, where do you most see this or most, I guess, where do you most see this playing out today? Yeah. You know, if we think about who our neighbors are, we don't want certain people to be our neighbors. Like we don't love our neighbors. It could even be Christian neighbors that think differently politically. Like let's bring it home. Right. I cannot opt out of loving people who vote differently than me. I cannot opt out of loving. And now we might have to talk about what loving will look like, but I cannot opt out of loving people that really get on my nerves. And so, you know, that comes back to me. People might say something to me on social media because they don't like something I say. And I'm like, well, I can back it up with scripture, Christian tradition, but I have to stop myself. For example, on social media, I have to say, okay, this is rubbing me the wrong way, getting on my nerves, but I cannot dehumanize other people in my words or language or how I treat them. And I see a lot of people that are Christians, they just mouth off and destroy with the tongue. And, and in some ways it might, I might even support. I see why you're mad and angry. And I'm not saying don't rebuke people, but there comes a line where we dehumanize people. I see Christians that don't care about the kids at the border or say, well, they shouldn't have come here. I'm like, oh my gosh, you do not understand. You're demonstrating your ignorance of the, yeah, and that's when I get really upset. I'm like, you are demonstrating your ignorance of the situation. And sometimes in my mind, I think, well, maybe if they understood what was going on, maybe they would change their mind. Maybe, maybe not. But when people say ignorant things like that, for example, my blood starts to boil a little no, bit. I'm with you. I mean, I, I I thought that might be where you start because I just, I feel like that has to be breaking God's heart more than, I mean, so many things, but yeah. that one with how we are treating our neighbors at the border. Separating I, children. And, and then, uh, you know, and then you learn about American history. You see that eugenics came from the United States, that the Nazis come. Like the more history you learn, the more you're like, oh, you know, there are good things about this country, but there are some bad things. So this is not happening in a vacuum. Like the right. way you're looking at people on the border is, is not, ab- it's not an aberration. It's the way we've been. So when people do that, it's really hard for me. I have to just take a moment, you know, or not respond. Not, I, I mean, I respond to plenty. You know, I'm not afraid to say, you know, this is wrong. This is why I think it is. And I hope you understand, but I don't want to do the same thing to them that I think they're doing to people at the border dehumanize. Yeah. 
That's what you're speaking to me because mm-hmm. that's that's the neighbor that can be hard to love. The yeah. ones that don't have the empathy and compassion you think they should. But again, when we're not loving them, we're being just as unchristlike, and that's that's really hard. So, how do you constructively talk to me? How you how you do that? How you? Yeah. Well, when I feel anger welling up in me, I try not to act out of anger, like right mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. social media out of anger. I try to think about it. And I've asked a few people, I'm like, hey, let's come come to my house before the pandemic, right? Come to my house and let's talk about this. If I think you live nearby. And I mean it. Because yeah. I like, yeah. let's talk in person about this. And, you know, I try not to do an eye for an eye. I, I try to attack issues, but not people. But, I, you know, there are other things that I'll do. So I have to like walk myself back, maybe talk to my husband. I guess what guides me is probably what guides you to and others. I don't want to do to others what I don't want to done to me. You know, I don't, I want to treat others the way I want to be treated. Now, I mean, this could be anything with like my daughter's, you know, I have some homework to do and they're coming to talk to me. Mommy, I want to talk to you. Like I need to, that's another way to love my closest neighbors, my family members. Cause I, I guess what I want to say, Andrea is like how I see the church, not loving people. I mean, we can talk well about God, could talk theologically about God, talk doctrinally well about God, but then not live anything like Jesus. And I'm not interested in, and the people that I'm around in my PhD program, I'm not going to put words into their mouth, but people are watching. They know that our actions speak louder than our words. The old saying, earn the right to be heard. Even if people disagree with your stance on something or your take or your view on the world, if you are kind and loving and respectful of them, they would at least listen to you. Uh, We're not presenting the gospel in a good way and um, use Matthew Paul Turner's um, Jesus needs new PR. I mean, that's what hurts me the most. Don't you see that your anger and the way that you treat, even treat other Christians, people are watching former Christians, people that are non-Christians, like they're watching everything we do. We do not have the right to speak to them if we're not living like Christ. And and they see it's it's basically how we present ourselves and what, what we believe and why we believe what we believe. But if we don't do it in love, exactly right. like Paul said, we're just clanging symbols. When people meet Christians that are loving and kind, and even if they have different stances, they're shocked. I know. Wow. And it shouldn't be that way. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that's how it go, where it goes back to your message in the book of, of emptying yourself daily. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. emptying of this self that I want to win, win an argument. I want to be right. Emptying is a, of us and letting Jesus fill us up. And it's hard. It's hard, especially in this political climate where we are so divisive in this country. And you talked to, so you brought it up briefly, but loving means a lot of different things. Loving does not mean like that person has to be your best friend that you disagree with. You want to share it? I mean, explain that a little bit. The whole we, if we can identify our neighbor, but what does actually loving mean? Because that looks, I think that looks different kind of depending on the neighbor, maybe? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? A loving thing might look, you know, not dishing it back. You know, the most loving thing that you might be able to conjure at the moment is just like walking away, right? Right. They don't even know, like I could have blasted you. Yeah. You will never know I could have blasted you or made you look bad or whatever, but I'm walking away. And Jesus did that, you know, throw the the first stone then and done, ended it. I mean, Jesus did not always engage and try to, so I think that's a great... Tell me what, as, as also being the mother of daughters, what are you doing? Because I think about this often for my own girls. What are you doing to teach them this about emptying yourself and going low and loving your neighbor? Like, what do you think are some of the most impactful things to teach our daughters, our kids? I try to teach them to remember the poor, but I think the biggest thing is through example, not by words. 
So what can we, what do we as a family do to care for the poor? That's not demeaning to poor people, of course, you know, what do we do? Um, So we try to talk about it daily, like what it means to follow Jesus, how you use our words and we fail, of course, but, and also though, like my husband, Sean said at one point when we were at Christian university and they were very particular about what kind of church you go to, he's like, I am not going to a church where women can't do anything because they're going to learn or they're going to feel, or they're going to get messages that there are superior or, or inferior. My daughters are inferior. And I said, yeah, but a lot of our friends are there. I was like, I'm like, how much of that can I put up with? And he's like, Marlene, you wouldn't be able to put up with it. You would just be rolling your eyes internally at the sermon. You would be mad every single Sunday. Is it really worth it? And so we're not going to say you can't do stuff. So, or communicate that subtly by the structures we're in. And also we make sure they read stuff from people of color, understand the situation. I also want to say too, that, you know, we answer honestly about things we don't know because they have questions about gender, this or that. And we're like, okay, this is what some people think. This is the situation, but we do try to answer honestly. And the best we know, if we don't know, we say, we don't know, or we're unsure, but I don't ever want them to think, well, I'm a girl, so I'm less than, and I can't do stuff. The churches that we're at, the people we're around, the books they read affirm that. And I mean, we've, like I shared with you, we went down that road of having our daughters for a time in a church that they couldn't be. And I see the effects of that on my 17 year old that Mm -hmm. you maybe think it's not a big deal, but it is. I mean, that the misogyny and Mm -hmm. purity culture and all of that really shapes them and affects them more, more than, you know, so (laughs) that's a whole other conversation, Marlena. Well, we are running out of time. I hate that went so fast. Tell me I'm trying this shifting gears because I'm trying to ask my guests this, this season, because we're in COVID and life is hard right now. Tell me what is bringing you joy right now? What's bringing you joy and what's keeping you grounded? Joy is things like I can look out both my windows. We live on a corner, see my front yard inside. You're just being in my front yard. I was thinking, what's Mm -hmm. a blessing going outside and social media can be good and bad, but I just think about, we could not be doing this right now if we didn't have social media and technology and just talking to friends on, I mean, I really do miss being around people uh, lately, but just I was on a retreat on Zoom with some Roman Catholics just the other day. And I was just so glad. I'm like, I know I would rather be there in person. And this is so beautiful, even though it's on Zoom. Like it was such a beautiful experience. So that brings me joy. But just the little things bring me joy. Like yeah. three little birds that hopped up on my ledge the other day and they were poking their heads, like trying to look at my window. That brought me joy. <laughs> Good. That's, that's the things we need to hear because it is those little things that we've got to work to find joy. It's not, it's not as easy as it maybe was before COVID. So Marlena, tell us where you can be found your website and we'll make sure to link everything up, but tell us where we can go to find you. Thank you, Andrea. Again, so grateful to be here. Uh, MarlenaGraves.com. You can find a lot of the things I've written and how to get in touch with me, MarlenaGraves.com. And I always say I love Twitter. So um, you can find me on Twitter. I am not on Twitter. I think I need to be on Twitter because I've heard more and more folks say that they love it. So, well, I mean, everyone's different. So (laughs) I (laughs) I know. Well, we will put links to all of that, Marlena. Thank you for giving up an hour of your afternoon to talk to me. There's so much more I wanted to get into with your PhD and that, but I I look forward to more writings from you and hearing more from you. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Blessings to you.